you know, after we did our new members class uh, several weeks ago and kind of graduated them, we've been doing some foundational messages. And um, we're, we're in a section on words and words, and today we're going to talk about words that confront. Um, if you guys remember last week, we, we, we dealt with this general principle from Ephesians 4, verse 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Um, and, and last week, we, we reflected on the need to give to one another words that build up in Christ, that point to God's faithfulness. And we talked about words that comfort in suffering. We reflected on the need to follow Paul's example of encouragement. We saw how, even in that letter to the Corinthians, he took great care to remind his hearers before he opened up a tremendous amount of correction on them, he reminded them that God was at work in them and that God would be faithful to the end to sustain them in him. And it, it, I didn't talk about this last week, but I realized if you weave your, your mind through the whole book, you'll see him do that again and again and again. That as he brings up different aspects of ways the church is failing, he will come back around and say, but this is who you are in Christ. He is going to be faithful to you. And, and much of his motivational rhetoric for why they should, they should repent in certain areas is because of who they are in Christ. And so he continues, even when he upbraids them, to say, but you are in Jesus. You are saved. You are sanctified. You are, you are a pure people of the Lord in his sight. So act like it. And that's kind of his method for, I shouldn't say kind of, that is his method for speaking to the people of God. He encourages them in who Jesus is inside them and his faithfulness to the end for them. And then we reflected on not just building up with encouragement, but words that build up in the midst of our suffering, including the need to be careful, to mourn with those who mourn and perhaps say little, um, even sparingly, to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and, I, and I, I identify if we can, to say, I've, I can empathize with what you've been through. If the Lord has given us that gift that, that Paul talked about, of being able to be comforted in certain kinds of sufferings so that we can comfort people in those sufferings with the sufferings that God has comforted us with. And it's affirmed to them that Jesus has not left them, but will stay with them. So this morning, we're going to continue in the themes of words that build, but we're going to move into a, a difficult area. Uh, I mean, all these aspects of, of speaking and speaking in ways that the Lord would have us speak have their challenges. But this, this challenge feels upfront. It feels, um, it's easy to feel the challenge of this concept, which is words that exhort, words that exhort, particularly words that exhort when brothers and sisters are straying. So the, the overhanging mantle passage I'm going to kind of walk us through before we take some applications is in Hebrews 3. And it's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. I should have said at the beginning. So if you want to move there, Hebrews 3, 12 through 15, it's a good place to go. And here's what Paul says there. Take care, brothers. And that's a generic Greek for brothers and sisters. It's like mankind. He says, take care, brothers, 
and sisters, let there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now the author of Hebrews is speaking to a people who are facing potential persecution. Uh, And a pragmatic way to escape this persecution is just to shift back to a more comfortable, more socially acceptable religious paradigm, the, the Jewish, the Judaism of their past. And so the book is written to a group of Jewish converts, probably not in Jerusalem, but scattered throughout uh, the, the Greek world. And in the face of encroaching persecution against Christianity, they're being invited to return to Judaism and to basically give up on Jesus because it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Like we prayed for Afghanistan today. It's going to cost them to stay with Jesus. But it, it won't cost them if they just say, hey, I'm not with him. I'm, I'm a Jewish person. You, you know, the, the Greeks and the Romans, you guys know who the Jewish people are. We've been among you for centuries. And, and so leave me, a no, <laughs> leave me alone. We're good. And he's exhorting them. There's, there's no hope in that. You can't denounce Jesus. You can't give up on what God has shown you and who God has become to you and believe that you're going to find eternal rest in God. You're not going to. There's no turning back, in other words. And so he's alluding to, as a way of motivating, he alludes to this terrible warning from Israel's history when the people, even after they'd seen the miracles of Exodus, the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, when in the following months that ensued, they respond to God with a stubborn unbelief and a rebellion again and again. And you can track this through the Exodus wanderings. Whereas Moses leads his Jewish people, there's, there's several scenes where they just say, we want a new leader, we're done with this, send us back to Egypt, this is too hard. And, and God is patient with them for a long time. But finally, God brings them to a a climactic moment of decision and they fail that decision because of unbelief. They rebel against God. They rebel against Moses and they're sentenced to 40 years of wandering until that whole generation that came out of Egypt that was rescued by God until they pass away and they die in the wilderness and it's their children who inherit the land with the exception of two um, men of faith, Caleb and Joshua. Everybody else dies in the desert and doesn't get to enter into the promised land. 
the specific occasion of this climactic moment when God made this decision that they would wander for 40 years, there are several steps along the way, but the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back is, is when spies are sent into the land of Canaan, the land that God is going to give them, and he's told them to conquer. And they send spies into the land. They see these huge inhabitants. Uh, they may have been related to Nephilim, and, and they were big people. They were strong people that, that were going to be asked to fight against. And the spies come back terrified, and the people become terrified. And they don't just become terrified and plead to the Lord for courage. There's no attempts to go to God and say, Lord, help us. We should be courageous. We should trust in you. Please forgive our unbelief. Please, God, help us to be strong and courageous. There's no pleading like that. They're just like, no way. Are you crazy? We're not going. We're not going to do this. In fact, they make a plan to, to reject Moses and Aaron, fire them as their leaders, bring their own leaders in, so that leader can take them back to Egypt and take them back to the life that they knew before under slavery. They're basically saying to God, we are done with this Yahweh thing. <laughs> Send us back to Egypt. It's going to be much better there. And there's a rebellion. And, and God says, none of the men that have seen my glory and my signs, this is God's response to this rebellion, none of these men that have seen my glory and my signs, which I worked in Egypt and in the wilderness, will yet have, yet have put me to the test these 10 times. And he's referring to 10 different occasions of rebellion like leading up to this final one. He says, none of these men who have put me to the test these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, shall see the land which I swore to give their fathers. Neither shall any of them that despised me see it. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying to these people and to us is, don't harden your hearts against God. Those of you who have come to Christ, who have seen him, do miraculous work in your life to convict you of your sin and bring you to his son and given you forgiveness and mercy and grace. Don't go back. There's no going back. There's no other salvation. Don't take this revelation of Jesus and abandon it, whether you want to call it apostasy or deconstruction or just a slow slumber into the hardness that comes from sin, unrepentant sin. Don't throw it away. We saw this weeks ago when we preached on the Niagara Falls and drifting away and not neglecting our salvation. But there's a different antidote for that. Whereas a couple of weeks ago, the antidote was pay closer attention to the salvation that you've heard. There's a different message today. It's, it's for the same purpose, but it's a different message. So the same message comes, sin is a liar if you're not careful, if you don't fight it, if you don't resist it. Unbelief is a liar if you don't battle with your doubts, if you don't confess and come back, get back up slowly and subtly, it will seduce your heart, infect your heart with unbelief, lead you to fall away from the living God. Again, he's not talking about real doubts that we struggle with, that God does want us to work through, that become great means of building up our faith as we wrestle through those honestly before the Lord. He's talking about selling out Christ because it's easier. 
And then he reminds them of this time-bending truism we've talked about before. He says, we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. Past tense. If we hold our original confidence to the end. Future. We have come to share past tense if we hold our confidence to the end. If we don't give up on him. Essentially, this is just another appeal to embrace this truth we see all throughout Scripture that truly saved people will not give up on Jesus. And conversely, a person who gives up on Jesus and turns from the revelation of God and refuses Jesus as, as their Lord and as their salvation, that they were never truly saved to begin with. So again, a few weeks ago, we went through this similar theme in, in Hebrews 2, and the answer was to pay closer attention to the message of our salvation in Christ. But in this passage today, the author calls for a different application. He calls on the entire community of believers to do something with each other and for each other. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving, evil heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but instead exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. So before the application might be reflect, meditate, pray more about the salvation you've been given in Christ. It had a more individualistic application in the message. Today, it's a social message. It's a horizontal message. It's a relational message between people. It's exhort each other, exhort each other, be in each other's lives, warning, encouraging, admonishing, correcting. The implication is that we each bear a responsibility to watch out for one another's faithfulness to Jesus. And this idea, this watching out for one another, is essential to what it means to belong to a church. It's why we ask people to commit to our church. We're not committing to an address. We're not committing to a Sunday morning service. We're committing to each other. We're committing to relationships with one another to say, I'm going to be in some of your lives. Can't be in everybody's lives the same way. But I'm going to be in the lives of people here, encouraging them, exhorting them to stay faithful to Jesus. It's why we do care groups. It's why we do the DRs. It's why God puts it on your heart to meet with each other and go out to each other because this is part of the heritage of being part of the people of God is that we belong to one another, to watch out for one another, to exhort one another. He says, exhort each other as long as it is today. That is habitually, all the time. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it each day. Call the same person, say the same thing. He's talking about a habitual process of being in one another's lives. And encouraging one another as long as it is today. Today is this theme in Hebrews of when God speaks. When God is offering himself to us. That's where we are. We're in the day of grace. The age in which God is saying through Jesus. Come to me. Stay with me. A day is going to come when that day is going to end. When we will leave this earth in death. Or Christ will return in judgment and say, the time to come to me is over. Now is the time for judgment. Now is the time for my kingdom to be fully established. But now is the day of salvation. For our brothers and sisters among us, now is the day to call each other to stay faithful. For those who don't know Christ, now is the day to say, Christ wants you. Come to him. That's today. That's where we are right now. That day won't last forever. And so he says, while we're in that day, we must speak to each other. 
words that exhort, words that sometimes have to correct, words that reflect the truth, the truth in love, until we all make it to full maturity in Christ. So this word specifically exhort used here in verse 13, it it carries a wide range of meaning. And here in the context of what we're seeing, the deceitfulness of sin and unbelieving heart, it has the, the connotation of to urge strongly, to appeal, to entreat. It's not simply an encouragement, a comfort, like we talked about the last two weeks. It, 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 it can mean that. It should involve that. But these exhortative words will also at times mean a kind of sober admonition. That as we watch each other being pulled into the world and pulled away from Jesus, we will warn each other. We will caution each other. We might bring correction to each other. So the tenor of the exhortation here in this particular passage is say to each other, watch out, be careful, stay close to him, don't give up. And maybe sometimes turn around, please turn around. But these still are words of grace. In some contexts, they're the only kind of grace we can give, right? Peter O'Brien writes about this passage, God himself gives for grace both promises and warnings to assist his people on their pilgrimage so that they will persevere in faith and reach their final rest. As the congregation or a congregation and its members heed this injunction to keep on admonishing, and keep on encouraging one another, they may be confident that God will use their encouraging and exhortative ministry of his word to help their brothers and sisters avoid the perils of unbelief and disobedience. He's trying to say God gives warnings in his grace, in his love, and his mercy. I mean, any of you guys who have kids or have been parented, which is pretty much all of us know that the only kind thing that a parent can do when your kid is walking into traffic is to warn them sternly and perhaps, if necessarily, discipline them. That's the only kindness. They, they don't need a lollipop at that point. Or, hey, buddy, that was crazy, wasn't it? Careful next time. That's not what they need. They need a, Matthew, you cannot do that. Honey, you're going to get hurt. And maybe a spanking on the tush. So that they really get it. They really understand. That's what grace is. And so at the outset, I want to mention this connective tissue of grace, whether it's words that, that encourage in the way that we're traditionally used to it, like, Hank, Jesus is with you. He's not going to give up on you. We need those words of comfort when we're really suffering. And these are words of grace too, words that admonish and warn. But, but let's be real here. It's, I mean, for me personally, it's a lot easier to say, look you in the eye. Even though, I, even though I don't do it enough, it's a lot easier to look you guys in the eye and say, Jesus will be faithful to the end than it is to take you privately, you know, to the corner after prayer and say, hey, what's going on? I'm, I'm worried about you. I don't like doing that. It's a lot easier for me to come alongside you or, you know, to talk to Daryl or Ton. You know, Daryl's, if you guys saw the prayer email, Daryl really needs our prayers right now. He's going through it with his cancer recovery. And I love to go over there and, you know, when they're ready, I'm excited to bring oil and pray over Daryl, you know, just waiting for their call. 
But if I was seeing something wrong in Daryl's life, and I'm not, <laughs> to go over there and talk to him about that, that would intimidate me. I'd be really, really intimidated by that. And, and when it's easy for me to do that, like when, for instance, with my wife who I'm comfortable with, when it's easy for me to admonish her or correct her, pretty much often that's not what I should be doing. <laughs> you know, so this is really tricky. When I want to do it, I probably shouldn't be doing it. And when I really should be doing it, I often don't want to do it. You guys probably can relate to that, right? Who's not been in the situation where you're a bringer or a receiver of words of correction, words even of warning, and you find yourself after that interchange with that person, either receiving it or giving it, you just find yourself devastated with the ensuing relational car wreck that just happened to you. You meet for someone for coffee and you come out, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just got pile-driven. Or I, I was trying to love them as best I could. Lord, I was trying to be faithful and do the hard thing and say it as well as I could. And they just crushed me, you know? We've all probably been, on, been there. And at, at one level, this is not avoidable. Like given remaining sin inside us and our remaining imperfections and our lack of perfect wisdom, we will never be safe from the possibility of hurting one another with our words. To be in close relationship with each other means sooner or later we're going to hurt each other. Someone put it this way. If you know me long enough, you will either be disappointing or disappointed. (laughs) You will be both. Spend enough time with me, you will be disappointing or disappointed. That's just the way it goes in relationships. The, the only way we can protect ourselves from that possibility of hurting each other is just to give up on relationship and community altogether. That's obviously not an option. On the other hand, there is so much in the word of God about how to bring exhortation, admonishment, warning, correction. There is so much that by God's grace, we can Make this hazardous journey something that the Lord can and will use. He gives us a lot of wisdom in his word about how to do this when we have to do it. So what I want to do with the rest of the morning is to offer some important instruction from the word of God on how to bring words like this. And we'll probably continue with this next week. Um, So again, the context here, as I give these application points to kind of bring the back end of this message in. The context here is that we think, as we look at at someone in our lives, a brother or sister, that there's a possibility that they are wandering into significant sin, moving into a state of unbelief. And we sense that we may need to confront them in love. So, as we do that, the word of God gives us some crucial principles and questions to walk ourselves through hopefully before we try to engage. And the first one is, is just the most basic. Like, do we need to do this? Do we need to bring this issue to this person? I know a brother at another church who came to the temporary, thank God, thank goodness temporary, but who came to the temporary conviction that every time he saw someone do or say something that, that he thought was wrong, he had to say something to them every time or else he thought he was disobeying God. 
And what wasn't operative in his functioning at this point was this category in Scripture called forbearance. Forbearance. Colossians 3.13 says to us, Live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Forbearance sounds like what it is. It, you just bear with the person. You just put up with it. You don't need to mention it. You don't bring it up to them. You endure it with patience. Mainly because that's what the Lord does with you all day long. And because if you did bring it up, it would do more harm than good. Maybe there'll be a time. But through your maturity and the Holy Spirit's work as you try to discern, you just recognize that this isn't something to bring up right now. It's not a battle that we need to fight. And this is something, again, you know, we, we all relate to with our parents or in our parenting. You know, it say someone's thoughtlessness is just consistent with their dishes at home. Now, if my daughter Marie has a lot, if I, if I look at her life and she's got a lot on her emotional plate and I just recognize where she is in her life right now and she's working on this thing and this thing and this thing and she's got this pressure and this pressure and we're trying to help her to trust God through those things and she's leaving her dishes out, you know, my loving response to her might be, just leave her alone about that. I'm talking to her about other things. She's working through other things. It might very well be the gracious thing to do, the godly thing to do, is just to not say anything, but do the dishes myself for her. So, I, I, again, that takes discernment, you know, but, but a fair question at the outset is to ask, am I going to be really nitpicking to bring this up? Or is there a clear pattern that I've seen over time of sinful neglect? Or is there an event, a, a, a one-time event that's a big deal? I think this is a significant sin against God and others that needs intervention. Or is this something that God would just say, forbear, forbear. This person's not cleaning up their room. This person's late to this thing. And, you know, there's just a lot that needs to be forbearing if we're going to live in insanity with each other. So that's the first question is, do I need to bring this issue to this person, especially at this time? Number two, though, here's a really, really big ground zero question, maybe the biggest one of them all. What do I want? Like, I want to go to this person. I'm feeling this nudge to go to them and talk to them. But what do I want out of this? Like, why am I going? Why? It's important when we're going to bring a corrective word to somebody, admonishment, that we ask ourselves, what am I after here? Like, why do I want to do this? Proverbs 20 verse 5 says that it's not an easy thing to figure this out. Not as easy as we might think. The Proverbs says, the purpose of a man's heart is like deep water. But a man of understanding will draw it out. And he doesn't mean necessarily you talking to someone else. It can mean you with the Lord trying to understand why you're doing what you're doing or about to say what you're about to say. And so it's important that we seek to discern what is it we want? 
when we're bringing something difficult to somebody. And a lot of times, the motivations, there's an admixture. We want this and we want this. And a lot of times, it's an issue that we need to, we need to shift our central motivation from one thing to another. Let, let me try to explain what I mean. Many years ago, a man in a small group that I was leading at another church, one night, he hurt me really bad with his words. I mean, I think any of you guys who were in the room and watched the, the small group and the other guys, I think, affirmed that later, who saw this happen, just thought, wow, that guy was way out of line. I mean, he just kind of, I don't know what his deal was. His name was, well, I'm not going to say his name. You wouldn't know him, but this is like a couple of decades ago now. But, but he just wailed on me. I was like, whoa, just crushed me. I, I mean, I thought he was harsh, he was condemning, he was arrogant, and he was. He didn't have any clue that he was, but he was. And I was really mad at him, really hurt my feelings. I felt really disrespected, I felt really maligned, I felt tra- a little traumatized by it, it really hurt my heart. And it really troubled me as the days went on. It just grew the trouble in my heart about it. I knew that I had to talk with him. But as I struggled through how to say it and what to say it, I I could also tell that I just was not at peace with my own heart. I couldn't put my finger on exactly why. So I, I, I wrestled with God in prayer one night. I was walking and I was talking with God about this. And I felt the Lord just ask me simply this question. Albert, what do you want? Like, what do you want? It wasn't like, what do you want? That's the wrong tone. (laughs) It it really was, what do you want out of this? What are you looking for here? And I realized, through God's help, that what I really wanted more than anything, what I really wanted was I wanted to be right. I wanted to be right. I wanted to be seen as right in front of this guy, in front of those guys that he bashed me in front of, and I wanted to basically put this guy in his place. I was hurt and I wanted to be right. I wanted vindication. And I, I sensed the Holy Spirit say, if you want to work with me on this, want something else. <laughs> it was a real gentle moment where I really did think I heard the Lord say, get a different want. And the Lord had to do a work in me to help me, especially in my hurt, which I think he was, the Lord was very sympathetic of. In all our afflictions, he's afflicted. But he had to shift my primary want from Getting back at this guy, which he didn't want me to want at all, but he, he, had to want, he had to help me to want restoration and peace. Like restoration and peace, basically. He had to work a new motive in me, a supplanting motive, to drive out the motive of vengeance, or even to move the primary motive away from simply, I just want to be right, and I want these guys to know I'm right. He had to move love in, say, Albert, want this guy's good. Like, want his good. Want peace with him. Don't shove it under the rug. Pretend he didn't hurt you. Don't admit you were hurt. Don't say it was hard for you. You can say all that, but, but want his good in this. Like, want his good. And the Lord helped me do that. We'll talk more next week about how to get to that place from where you, you want Vindic- vengeance, you know, w- w- that, that's an easier one to handle. But, but how to even get the motivation away from strictly, I want justice, you know, into I want, I want good for this person. I want their good. We'll talk more about that. But, but, but asking that question, what I want out of this is so key. 
Because if we just assume, especially in our hurt and our pain, that what we want is right and we move in that way, we're really liable to get hurt and more and to hurt them more and to make the situation even worse because God's not going to bless that. If that motive is not where it should be, God's going to, he's going to get in the way of that. It's not going to go well for us. If he's our dad and he wants to be good to us, he's not going to let us live with really bad motives when we're confronting each other. James writes about this in James 4.12, or James 4, 1 through 12. He says, the Lord's, this is James, Jesus' own brother. He, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. He, he doesn't mean they're literally murdering each other. He, he means with their hearts, their hatred for each other. They're killing each other in their hearts. You covet, you want lustfully. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This isn't a treatise against pleasure. God Remember, we've talked about this lots of times. God gives apples and oranges and hamburgers and blue skies. He, he loves pleasures. He's talking about sinful pleasures where I just want what I want and you're going to have to pay for it and you're going to get beat down because I'm sick and tired of this. I wanted respect. I wanted vindication. And it was feeding a rage in me towards this person. It was understandable that I was hurt but my passion for justice was all about me. It had no love in it. So in my heart, I was killing him. So often just stopping and wrestling with the Lord, asking, what do I want here, will lead to really good, healthy wrestling with him and a purifying process so that you can bring the issue up in a much better way from a much better place. So again, many of our motives are desire to be treated with respect and kindness are good, they're reasonable. Our, our desire for an apology when we're truly wronged, it's a God-given desire to not be treated awfully. It's being born of made his, in his image. He's not a God who likes to be dishonored, disrespected. But, but these desires which are good, they so quickly turn into idols of the heart when they become demands. And at that point, they start to fuel our rage and our self-righteousness. So before you go to someone else, ask God to help you understand why you're going and to realign your motives with his at the top. And his motives are going to be for their good, for your restoration with them, for for peace for both of you. It's always going to include the good of the offended party or the good of the offender. Uh, last one for today. Uh, eh, another question to ask. So we've got, should I do this? Should I talk? We've got, what, what do I want? Why am I doing this? And then thirdly, am I coming as a fellow sinner? Am I coming to this person as a fellow sinner? Or am I coming to them as a judge? And we spoke about this weeks ago when we talked about 
Matthew 7 and, and judging one another, the plank in our own eye and the speck. I'm not going to go down that road. But I do want to go back to this parable at the end of Matthew 18 because it's so informative in these kinds of situations. Jesus says there, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what, he had, what, what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So, Basic math, you guys are probably familiar with this, but the sum that the king forgave was millions and millions of dollars. The 10,000 bags of gold, millions and millions and millions of dollars. The sum that the fellow servant owed to that forgiven man would have been about 14 weeks of, like, probably uh, menial wages. So millions and millions and millions of dollars versus... Three and a half week, three and three and a half months of, of pay. The sums are intentionally incomparable. Now, I understand th- this parable is not precisely directly talking about bringing potential sin issues to others, exhorting one another. But the issue is that connects these two ideas is the issue of self righteousness. The unmerciful servant had forgotten how much he had been forgiven. And now he was a weapon of cruelty to his fellow debtor because he didn't recognize what had happened to him. He, he forgot it. He let it go. He ignored it. You know, when we think about what Afghanistan and these brothers and sisters there who are and of course, it's all social media, so we never know for sure what's true or what's not true. But I've seen some things from guys I know. Like I posted something on Facebook this week from a guy named Jonathan Lehman. I know Jonathan Lehman personally. And, and he, you know, he says, I have this good friend who works with pastors in Christian Afghanistan, and here's what they've said to me. So I'm pretty sure that that's a really credible thing. And the message was astounding. We're scared, we're horrified, we're trapped, we couldn't get out. 
We heard that they're coming for us. Please pray for us. And what God wants for those people in Afghanistan, should he not rescue them, is he wants them to stand for him. And he wants them to be willing to die for him. What he wants is for, in that moment of critical decision-making, for their lives to testify that he is worth more than anything in this world. That the giver is worth more than the gifts. Because that's true. And because that's what he deserves. And because hearts that don't affirm that and hearts that don't prove that with their lives, that the giver is worth more than the gifts, those hearts are worthless. Those hearts are, please forgive me if this hurts your ears, those hearts are whores, whorish hearts. Those hearts want to use God, not love God. Those hearts are idolatrous. Those kinds of hearts are worthy of damnation. They're deeply offensive to God. Hearts that want to use God for his gifts, but not worship him as more worthy than the gifts, are damnable hearts. That's how God sees them. Brothers and sisters, that's all of our hearts. That is the principal disease of the human heart. We exchange the glory of God for the glory of created things. And God says because of that, his wrath is upon all of mankind. So, that's, if you know yourself well enough, you will, you will have recognized that. And if you don't see that, God will show you. He'll give you grace if you want him to, if you ask him to. That apart from Christ, that's what you would be. And that's where you have been. All of us have been. And what we continue to struggle with, principally, is this disease of me being God and using God to get what I want out of God as opposed to worshiping him and loving him as God. And, and that manifests itself in all kinds of ways in our lives, right? Selfishness, competitiveness, pornography, greed, ignoring the poor, using the poor to make ourselves look great. I mean, it's just, But we, we do that. We struggle with that every day. That's our principal disease. That's what Jesus' blood was poured out for so that God would be, a, his, his justice would be satisfied and he could receive us back and forgive us for this. And for these sins against him that we, we commit, we have nothing to pay him back. We have nothing to pay God back for our sin. We can't go back in time and undo the sins we've committed or the, the heart 
the lusts of our heart that deny his glory and his goodness. We, if, we, if all we did was we stopped right here and we loved him perfectly, okay, all my sins over the past 49 years, I, I stopped today and now I love him perfectly from now through eternity. That would, that would just be me doing my duty. It wouldn't indebt him to me. It would only be what he is fair, what he is due for who he is. So I'm saying like loving God doesn't pay him back and indebt us to him. It's what we should. It's the only right like way to treat him. It's what he deserves. So if we just deal with God and people in terms of justice, like we're in deep trouble because we have nothing to pay God back with for loving his stuff more than him. And (laughs) so unless he pays that debt back, we forfeit our souls to an eternal state of judgment. But every day, his response to our sin in the past and ongoing is mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Patience, patience, patience. Cleansing, cleansing, cleansing. Every sinful thought, he works with me. He heals me. He cleanses it. Every sinful word, every sinful deed, he continues to forgive and forgive and forgive based upon the inexhaustible worth of his son's blood. He just forgives and he gives me mercy and mercy. He gives you mercy and mercy. So if, if we know this and we hold this true, you know, hold this tightly, we, we don't have to wait. You know, we don't have to wait till the end of Matthew 18 when that servant says, please forgive me. You know, before, in their, during their confrontation, okay, I, I'll forgive you then. No, we can just go to people that we're in relationship with now that, that might, we might need to admonish or exhort or warn. We can just go to them mindful of, of what God has done for us. Like, we can carry that into the difficult conversation. We can walk into that meeting to, to warn somebody or to bring our concern to them. Just super conscious <laughs> that we owe a massive debt to God, that he has forgiven and continues to forgive. So when you're thinking about meeting with someone to talk about an issue, possibly involving their sin, I just appeal to myself, I appeal to you, take your own sin into that meeting with you. What I mean is, if you can, call to mind Maybe, maybe do this. Call to mind one of the worst things that you've done to God or others. And keep that sin and his forgiveness of that sin in your mind as you go to that person to, to ward off self-righteousness and to embrace a posture of humility and tenderness towards them because God's been tender towards you. It will bless you. They will be able to hear you better. God will honor that. You might even start the conversation with something like, listen, I've got a question about something I'm worried about, but before I bring it, you know, and and I don't know for sure, but I'm just, I I want you to know that whatever may be going on here that you may or may not have done, I am far, far from perfect. I need God's mercy over my sins every day. You don't need to use those exact words. The key is that your heart is disposed to see yourself as a fellow sinner and not as a judge. And whatever there is, you know, to discuss, however you, you, whatever words you say, if you have that attitude when you come to your brother and sister, it will 
It will bless the whole situation abundantly. It, it, it will dispose, position God's spirit to bless you the way he wants to. First Peter 5, 5 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when we go into these moments of difficult conversations, if we're warring against that pride and that self-righteousness and that condemning tone and attitude that we know it just bites at our hearts. and If we go to war with that, God's going to go to war with us. He's going to give grace to us. And a great way to go to war with that is just to remember, look back at our lives and just remember some. This is where like having obviously sinned in major ways that you can see, it's a, it, it's a real blessing at this point. Just to take, take that, you know, one or two of those instances with you into that meeting. So we're going to stop right there. Next week, we're, we're going to keep talking about this, including what does it mean to go to one another in th- this command to go in a spirit of gentleness? A lot of that's, we've talked about how to get there today, but we're going to talk more directly about what it means. The scripture says in several places that when we go to each other with difficult words, we bring a spirit of gentleness. So we're going to talk about that uh, in some other other points. But, um, but let's close this morning by asking the Lord to help us to be a church family that, that walks in wisdom and in love when it comes to redemptive words that might confront, that might exhort, admonish, correct. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, please give us grace to know how to talk to each other. Lord, you, you have called us to do this. You've called us to exhort, admonish, correct. And so we just pray for grace, Lord. God, I have failed in this so often. Getting a chip off my shoulder or speaking out of irritation and frustration as opposed to pleading with you. Lord, I, I really believe as we process these words This isn't simply about us learning some good tips. It's about us coming to you for help. In these difficult moments, in these relationships where there's tension, it's about us coming to you for help and just pleading with you again and again, Lord, help me. Help me, God. Help me to come in love. Help me to come with the right motives. Help me to come with humility and not self-righteousness. So, Lord, may we not forget that you live in us to strengthen us and that we can plead to you, with you and struggle with you in prayer so that you can have your way with us and bring the fruit out of our lives that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.